Genesis 3, and we'll start reading in verse 1. Probably a very familiar text to all of us. Um, One of the most well-known texts in the Bible. Notice here, if you'll follow along with me here in Genesis 3, 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who, whom you gave to me, to be with me, sorry, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, <clears throat> Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for this moment in time that we have. Lord, we've not passed over to eternity where there is no time, but this is time to repent, time to listen, time to believe. And so Lord, would You help us do just that? 
respond to your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, you read this story as a child, you hear it in church, uh, you know it even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible for the most part, uh, the, the serpent, the apple, the, the, t- the couple um, clothed in fig leaves, it, these are all dramatic symbols, they're all well-known symbols, and yet even knowing this passage, you can't exhaust it. It's amazing to revisit passages that you think you're aware of uh, only to find that there is something deeper, something more, something new that God has to say to you and probably because of your perspective. It has nothing to do with the passage itself. Everyone's on a journey and as we go further down the line, things change. Um, For instance, the older I get, the more I like to work. It's interesting. When I was young, I didn't like to work at all. I did, I, I did more work getting out of work than working. And you all know people like that. And I was one of them. <laughs> um, I would do way more work to get out of work. And then my dad would say, well, look how much work you've done to get out of work. Why didn't you just do it? All you had to do was just fold some clothes. That was it. And as I get older, I notice that I actually enjoy work because of what it produces. And I also notice in the Scripture that, I kind of slipped my mind for a long time, that work is actually something from God. That God Himself works. Even before the fall. Even before we botch everything up. He works. He creates. And then He rests. That's something God does. It's something we're all created to do is work. And so I come to these passages at different points on my journey and the perspective changes. As if you're at the Grand Canyon and you can see the whole thing, at least you think you can, and you move around to the other side of the canyon and it looks totally different. Different time of the day. It's later in the evening. The journey's late. And for some of you, uh, it's good to revisit things that, are, that you think you already know. In particular, this story here. So, Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed by the Germans in 1945 as the war was coming to a close, he was hung for treason against Germany, Um, a Christian theologian. He says of this passage that this is really the first discussion about God in the Bible. So, up to this point, God is speaking to them, or maybe they're fellowshipping with Him directly, which is the case. But here there is a discussion about God. So this is really the first theological discussion. And the first sin comes from a wrong-headed understanding of God. Which sin always comes from that. It's always a bad theology. It's why Paul in his letters will always connect what we think about God to what we do with our life. He never disconnects thinking and doing. Doing and thinking, they go together. And they must. Because right thinking will end up doing right results and right living will also feed over into right thinking. So the first thing we notice here is the serpent. Chapter 3 opens with him. This enigmatic, mysterious figure. And I'm not going to get into the history of interpretation here to bore you uh, other than to say this serpent is a fascinating character Was it a snake like what we would think of? Probably not. It talked. It walked around. Who knows what this might be? Uh, It was some type of beast of the field um, in serpent form. And yet it's a serpent. So 
who knows? We know that uh, this is why I don't like snakes. Anything that lies on its belly and eat dust, I'm done with them. I don't do that. So, it, my reason for not liking snakes is biblical. What about your fear? Is it biblical? <laughs> All jokes aside, he's the deceiver. It's the serpent that we see over and over again. Uh, if you want to say analogically in, in the different texts such as Job. Think about Job. What does the serpent come to do? He comes to accuse Job. Try and even deceive God. Oh, he's only serving you because of X, Y, Z. As if God doesn't know why he's serving him. Notice his question here. And there's a lot of questioning going on here in chapter 3. There's more questions here than there are answers. Notice, the first question is this. He just simply says to the woman, it's almost, he almost sounds innocent, which is part of his cleverness. He says, did God actually say, don't eat of the fruit of the tree? Now, you've heard those kind of questions before. <laughs> At least Justin and my brother and I used to ask it all the time. You know, it's trying to really define the statement. You know, did Daddy actually say we had to have the clothes folded by five? Or did he just say, have them folded? Because if he said, have them folded, then eh, that kind of leaves it open, doesn't it? Kind of gives us some wiggle room here to keep playing Super Mario Brothers and finish this level. Doesn't it? Did he actually say a time or is it open? You see, the deceiver comes to ask simple questions. Almost they sound innocent at first. Did he actually say that? Did he actually call you to that? Just opens up the possibility of who being wrong. Who not being clear? God. Did he actually say not eat of it? And notice her answer. It's typical of us, which is why this is, this is kind of a, a paragon, if you was, an example of, of everything that we always do. Every one of us does this same thing when we sin. You know, did God actually say not to do that? And here, notice, notice what she does here. It's fascinating. Her, her, her answer isn't all innocent itself. She says to him, we may eat of all the trees of the garden, which is exactly what God has said, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. So she says in the middle of the garden, which he didn't say. And he also says, nor shall we touch it, which he didn't say either. So she actually gets in her mind, well, you know, maybe, maybe he did not really, maybe God is doing something here that's not right. Don't touch this tree in the middle. And also, or, or don't touch the tree, or don't eat of the tree in the middle, and don't even touch it. Why would he do that to me? Why would he say this to me? So she's already, even in her answering here, not saying exactly what God said. So, in other words, she's interpreting. And don't we do that same thing? It's the same thing Justin and I used to do with Daddy. We interpreted what he said, and then when he came back and said, Well, hey, why is the clothes not folded? We said, Well, you didn't specify. We're going to get it done, you realize. It just may be at 11 o'clock tonight. And of course, that was never His intention. If we knew the author, we would know interpretively, so to speak, that that was never the author's intention was to get it done at 11 tonight. 
but to have it done before he got back from his errand. But we justify, don't we? We try to push the envelope. That's not so bad. I mean, look at what everybody else is doing. That's another thing Justin and I used to try to pull out. All kids do. I'm sure my kids will pull it out one day. Where everybody else has that. At least we're not doing this like Todd's doing over here. Who's a childhood friend of mine? At least we're not doing that, Daddy. And we try to make ourselves look good. We try and justify our actions. We become a type of lawyer in our own defense. And notice what we said about Jesus earlier. He never defends himself. His character defends him more than his words. And yet here, these are words. And words will get you in trouble. It's the little ideas. It's not so bad to talk to that person. It's not so bad to hang out with those people. It's not so bad to do this or to do that. And we begin to interpret for ourselves what if we stopped and thought about the author himself, we know is not his intention. We know he was clear, but we, like some weaselly lawyer, come in and start wiggling ourselves like a serpent into these little holes. And wrapping ourselves around a justification for our evil. A justification for our disobedience. Just like Eve. And look, this is all very simple stuff. She's not going out and murdering someone. We're talking about eating fruit. And look what it caused. What does our sin cause? Because ours is far beyond which piece of fruit we're going to eat. Isn't it? <clears throat> you see, he creates something that it still hangs around today. This serpent. Doubt. It's what Nietzsche says when he crawls in his black pot of a stove and he says, I think, therefore I am. Which means, because I can doubt things, because I can think in my mind and doubt what you say or what science says or what the Bible says or what the church says, because I can think, I know that I exist. Because I can doubt. Based his whole life on doubt. And of course, I don't want to go through the philosophical history of what that causes. But the reason today why there's so much doubt is because of one man crawling on a stove and making that statement. Words mean something. What you believe means something. And what you doubt means something. And doubt always isn't a bad thing. Doubt can push us to search for truth. And truth will always be found if we really want to see it. The problem is we have become spider floating around or something up here. Uh, spider or gnat. The, the sad thing is that we have become dull of hearing. Our eyes have glazed over because we've listened to this deceiver. Now, he says, secondly, he says, look, you're not going to die. Just plain and simple. 
The first time, it, he kind of leaves it, let's just say, PG. But now he goes R-rated against God. Makes a statement that is abjectly against what God has told them, and that is, you will die. He says, you surely won't die. This is pure doubt. He's casting aspersions onto what God has specifically said. But because she's already opened her mind up to this possibility of God being not for her, now she can almost believe this. You know how it is. You know someone and someone else comes and tells you something about them and you first reject it. But the more you hear it, the more you believe it. Even if you don't know it to be true. And the more you doubt it. It's, it's the thing that we always talk about with lies. The more you say a lie, the more it's going to be believed. And look at all the lies that are cast even in our own culture right now. That people believe as fact, as true. And we could list some of those. And we'd all say, whoa, yeah. A lie can really spread. Doubt is easy. Critique is easy. It's doing something. It's doing the right thing that is difficult. It's like what I always say. Being bad is easy. Anybody can be bad. Anybody can get a divorce. Anybody can get so angry that they want to kill someone and do it. That's not difficult. It doesn't really take much. We don't applaud that. No culture applauds that. It's being good that is tough. It's being good that goes against the grain. Not giving in. It's like what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. He says, we would think that someone who has, you know, never committed adultery, never swayed sexually into fornication, we'd look at that person and say, what a prude. They have no idea what temptation is like. Because me, I failed here and failed there. They have no idea what temptation... And she says, I know actually they know more about what temptation is than the person who always gives in. Because it's easy to give in. Anyone can give in. You don't even know how hard it is to resist all your life because you can only resist for two months. So notice this in verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, when she saw that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree, notice this lastly, was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit. Now why does she think it's going to make her wise? Because the serpent said, surely you won't die. What will happen is you'll become like God. And He doesn't want you to become like Him. You'll know good and evil, so you'll be like Him. So she goes into this thing thinking, I'm going to be like God. It's almost a positive that she's reaching for in a negative way, in the wrong way. And isn't that what sin truly is? It's always seeking something right, good, in the wrong way. I mean... Every sin you could ever mention has a good as its aim. 
It's just the wrong timing. Lewis says it's like a piano, which is a great analogy that I've never been able to get out of my mind. He said, which key on this piano is bad? Well, there's not one. You know, the dun-dun-dun, that doesn't mean it's a bad key. The little ding-ding-ding, that doesn't mean it's a weak key. There's not a bad or good key here at all. It's the timing, according to the music, that makes it bad or good. When you hear a little, well, it's out of timing. We try to get what we want when we want it, and that's what we call sin. Everything is good. Paul even says that in his epistle. We make things bad. We corrupt things. You name it. We have spoiled things and that's why they have become corrupted. We've misused our freedom just like she does here. Now, notice what happens then. When she sees this, she eats it. It's really interesting in the Hebrew here. She takes... She eats, she gives, he eats. That's basically what it says. We put it in a sentence form of English here. She takes and eats, she gives to him, and he eats. Now it's interesting, is he there the whole time? Does he come up? We don't know. (laughs) All we know is that he eats without even a discussion. And... Just like Satan told him, this serpent, their eyes were opened. Notice this. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Their eyes were opened to something that they should have never seen. You ever been in that situation? where you saw something that you did not even want to be a part of, but because you had seen it, now you were a part of it, and you could do nothing else other than be a part of it. There's no going back. This is where we become. When we get entangled in sin, it'll always keep us longer than we wanted to stay. Make us pay more than we wanted to pay. We never bargained for that, and once we get in it, we get entangled. Like a web. A web of deceit and doubt. We begin to even question what we knew to be true before. Doesn't that happen for each of us? We feel like we know certain things. You know, you have to teach a child that God doesn't exist. Because they just assume He does. They have no problem with that. You have to teach people against that. It's against conscience. Every culture in the world up until the Enlightenment... No one ever questioned God's existence, whether there was many gods or one God or whatever. That's another discussion. But that God's existed, that God existed, that was never questioned. It's the most unquestioned thing in our world. You have to teach people that. Teach people this doubt. And it's a poison. Once injected, it's tough to get out of the brain. It's tough to grapple with. And things that we thought we knew become blurry. Because we're no, look, no longer looking toward the light, but instead into the darkness. 
you know, it's interesting. This is kind of maybe a weak illustration, but <clears throat> when I used to spend the night at Meemaw's house, and I was reminded of this the other night when I was in Revival and I spent the night with her, when I walked down her hallway, which is a pretty long hallway, uh, to the to the kitchen to get something to drink, because my, my bedroom I always stay in is at the very end of the house. Um, <clears throat> and I have my light on in my bedroom. Well, as I'm walking into darkness, eh, it gets darker. Can't see anything. But it's always fascinating. Once I find my way around to the kitchen, when I cut off the light in the kitchen, when I'm done, and I walk back toward the light, I can see everything perfectly. It's fascinating when we're walking toward the light, even our path is lit. When we're walking away from the light, the path becomes dark. It's our perspective. It's where we're at. And isn't it interesting that when they meet God here, notice in verse 8, what's the first question they ask in 9? Where are you? It's the question that ever since I've read this as a child, it reverberates in my mind, echoing over and over again. Where are you, Marshall? Where are you? God could have addressed them many different ways here. He already knew where they were. Surely He could see them hiding behind those trees. He made those trees. He made that garden. He knew where they were. That's not the real issue. Instead of demanding of them and not ask, he doesn't ask why, by the way, which, as you'll learn as a parent, you never ask that. I mean, you know, uh, Jackson pees in a garbage can instead of the toilet. What good is it to ask him why? Truly, what reason could he give? That would be a good why. There is no reason. You're not going to get a good reason. Why does Frank do what he does? We don't know. Will we ever know? Probably not. It's why I don't even ask why. I learned a long time ago uh, with Jackson not to ask why. Here, God, instead of asking why, which would have got him nowhere, ask him where. Where are you? Where are you, Marshall, right now? Now, notice his response. And by the way, uh, you know, she kind of leads the way on sinning here first. But he addresses Adam first. He addresses the man first and says, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, and I was afraid. Now, why was he afraid? Everything was perfect in the garden. They had everything they needed. They had, God had walked with them before. He had given them the opportunity to name all the animals while He's standing there. Why were they afraid? Because their eyes had been opened. And not in a good way. To see some things doesn't help us. All wisdom isn't profitable. He says, because I was naked and I hid myself. Here's the first instance of what we always do when we sin is we want to hide ourselves. We want to cover up even what we did. Which is why when Jackson peed in the garbage can, he blamed it on his little brother. 
who we would think would pee in a garbage can. And so because of Frank's character and his track record, we assumed it was him until we found out differently out of his innocent little mouth by saying that Haxon peed in the garbage can. (laughs) And only after further interrogation did we realize that it was actually him and we were surprised. It was out of character. And yet, it was done. He tried to hide it. I try to hide it. You try to hide it. And some of us are very good at hiding it. And that's not a good thing. Reminds me of Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees that vision of God high and lifted up, and the train of His robe fills the temple. Remember? And he says, wow, I'm undone. We're actually just saying it in his presence. I'm undone. I feel like I don't have any clothes on. It's kind of like that dream we all seem to have. We go to school and we look down and there's no pants. We're at work and we forgot everything. And we're exposed. We're undone. It's kind of like my seminary president when I was there he went to go preach a a women's uh, conference and um, he you know preached his heart out you know gave it to him and uh, sat down only to realize that his fly had been open and his shirt was poking out the whole time he said he was so embarrassed and he felt a lot like Isaiah did that day when he saw that vision of God because when we really see God when his presence is here we don't look so good We look down and we're not looking real well. We're not in a good situation. Our little coverings that we made for ourselves, thinking it could hide, are not hidden any longer when there's pure sunlight. It's the same thing. You go to a nice restaurant, it's romantic, what we call a romantic restaurant, and the lights are dim. Why? Because all imperfections go away when the lights are dim. That's why. You, You look better. That thing on your head that you had to deal with this morning isn't so red anymore. It kind of fades away in in the dim light. But when you are exposed to pure light, when you get up in that, Jessica's got one of these mirrors that are like a 25 times zoom, I look in there and I'm like, wow, I've never even seen that crater or whatever that just was. I think I'll flip that mirror and never look in it again. That's right. When we get in the presence of God, it's like that magnifying glass. Those things just seem to come out. The good news is, just like Isaiah, He can handle it. He can deal with us. It's not too much for Him to deal with. He has the cure. He is the healer. Their eyes were opened, but their eye was evil. Notice this here. He said, Who told you you were naked? And have you eaten of the tree which I command you not to eat of? All God does in this passage, by the way, is ask questions. That's it. He never makes a statement at all. And they're questions that are not condemning to them, but instead revealing to them. And so today, with you, with me, right here, in this moment that we have, What is God revealing to you? 
Are you afraid of His presence? Really? His face? You know how it is. When you do something bad, you kind of do like Frank. We call it the Frank, which is this. <laughs> he crosses his arms. Well, I can't do it as far as he does because of my shoulder. But And he puts his head down and scowls. Does not like to look at you because he's mad, because he's ashamed. Isn't that why robbers cover their face? We do bad things in the night, at night, the epistle says. It's because we don't like our face to be exposed. The face is one of the most recognizable things about you. And the face of God wants to look into your face and tell you today that you are His child. And that He loves you. He likes you. But you've got to stop doing what you're doing. Give it to Him. Now this is a, almost a wholly bad chapter. You know, I mean, this is the fall. How can it be good? And yet, it is. Notice this. When God gives the serpent uh, His portion, so to speak, in this matter, His justice in this matter, He says at the very end, there'll be enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. Historically, the church has always seen this as a promise. That's why, if you remember in the Passion of the Christ, it begins with Jesus stomping the head of the serpent with His heel. Because it's a fulfillment of this prophecy here. That through woman, we entered into sin, and of course the man, because they were one, but also through woman, redemption comes. The womb is redeeming. Why? Because God chose to save the world by becoming a little baby. By becoming a zygote. That grew into a child developed through gestation and was birthed and grew and had to learn and went to school and was disciplined and grew up to be a man and died for us. He gave His life for us. And just remember that part in the, in the Passion of Christ, if you've ever seen it, where He's beaten to a pulp. He's carrying His cross. His mother comes up and is just crying and she's distraught. And He says, look, Mother, I'm making everything new. And you think to yourself... Through the worst possible situation comes the best thing imaginable, which God becomes one of us. He always wanted to be with us. It's why He created us. And now He became one of us. And through giving up His life, not taking it like she took the fruit, not giving it and poisoning someone else, and in Adam taking it freely without even questioning That's not what's going on. Instead, by giving His life, by going through suffering, He saves many. He saves you. He saves me. He heals us through His brokenness. He makes all things new. That's what I say here as the title of today's message. 
O happy fall, O Felix Culpa, what it says in Latin, which was said by St. Augustine in 300 or so A.D. O happy fault, O happy fall, that He would become one of us. In other words, sometimes bad things must happen for good things to happen. (laughs) I mean... You ladies who have gone through childbearing know how tough it is to have a child, and yet look at the prize, look at the joy that you have now. Those sleepless nights, they pay off one day. Cleaning up urine in a garbage can, that pays off one day. And our rejection of God, if we will let Him turn it around, will pay off one day. Because we too, just like Adam and Eve here, we go astray. We walk away from the light. But He can turn us around today. We can try to wiggle like a little lawyer, trying to deceive ourselves, deceive other people, doubt God. Don't try to do that today. Don't justify yourself. Don't put yourself on His cross because you'll never stand. Your righteousness isn't enough. But today instead, come to Him. And He will take that burden. He'll take your sin into Himself. He already has. Didn't He say it was finished? He did. All you have to do is come. He's already prepared the table. It's time to partake. It's time to sup and fellowship with Him. It's time to drop our sin. It's time to stop our blaming as they do here. It was her. It was him. Don't hide your face from God. Because there's one who's come with good news. And that good news is for you this morning. This very moment that we have. You know, I love, the, our, I love our church and I love how our service runs. It's filled with prayer. I don't know, we, we pray any given Sunday five times or so, or maybe more, in a service. I think that's great. I'm not just biased because Jesus even says that my house ought to be a house of prayer. That's why I say that coming down to this part of the service where we respond to God in prayer, personal prayer, not some kind of corporate prayer that's just said by me and you kind of shake your head and agree, but you pray in this time. You take the time to answer the question, where are you? Where are you today? Are you in this for yourself? Or are you in this for God? Are you in this for yourself or are you in it for other people? You'll never be happy. You'll never, as Baz prayed for us this morning, you'll never have fun in life if you don't live for someone else. You must release your life for new life. Amen.